0: Statement, I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a kind of a, a statement that serves as a segue to our passage this morning in the second book of Corinthians in chapter 13. That's where we are in verses 5 or 6 because the Apostle Paul is going to ask the believers there, in essence, do you stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So you can be turning your Bibles to Second Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, I missed last Sunday. It's good to be back. We went to Maryland for what we would call another Montana wedding. I come from a large family, and so there are lots of weddings. My brothers and sisters got married. They had uh, children, and all those children are getting married now, or they've been getting married over the last several decades, actually. And so um, usually once or twice a year at least – uh, we attend family weddings. I try to attend as many as I possibly can. I think there was three this year. Uh, and one that I didn't go to. I was not able to go to. So there's already one on the books for July of next year. Uh, Corky, if you want to start working on a sermon for July of next, <laughs> next year. Um, but uh, Sam's not here, but I appreciate him filling in on the pulpit and preaching out of uh, numbers and Exodus on a problem that a lot of people have, and that is grumbling against the Lord, and it's a sin. And he gave a good, strong exhortation for us to be mindful of our attitudes. So now that we all have great attitudes this morning, let's look at the Apostle Paul's exhortation here in 2 Corinthians. He's going to ask this question, basically, it's a question that should concern all of us. And uh, are you in the faith? Are you truly saved? Has your heart of stone been transformed into a heart of flesh? Is Christ in you? Have you passed the test of faith? Let's read our passage. The Apostle Paul says to this church in Corinth, this struggling church, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So this is a legitimate concern. I'm sure we all share this concern about ourselves and about others. Are we in the faith? Are we truly saved? Are we authentic Christians, Are we the real deal or do we just say that we follow Christ or do we just, are we just acting like we love the Lord? So he is concerned about this and he exhorts them to take some time, whatever time necessary, and do some self-examination. Is Christ in my heart? I have a heart. Is Christ in my heart? I have a life. Is Christ in my heart? Life? Are you truly spiritually alive? And I know it seems like a simple question, but it's a very important question because everything from this point on regarding the Christian life depends on whether or not we're spiritually alive. So there, there's really no need to press on or talk about are you growing spiritually if we're not even alive spiritually. In the medical world, one of the first things that they do is uh, if there's any harm or sickness or if you are pushed, rushed into the ER room unconscious, they're going to check your vitals. That's what they've been trained to do because our vitals tell us whether we're alive or not. And they also tell us w- what might be wrong. You know, Are we breathing? How, what, what kind of shape is our heart? In and so forth, do you have a pulse? Because if you go into, if you're pushed into the ER room and they check your vitals and you don't have a pulse, you don't get a meal. You don't get pain relievers. You don't get a hospital gown with your bottom sticking out of the back, all these kind of things, you know. Those you only get when you are alive and treatable. So it's, it seems like a basic thing, but when you think about it, everything hinges how far, how far we're going to go in Christ, whether we have affection for Christ. It all hinges on whether or not Christ lives in us. Have we been transformed? And so it's, it's of great, great concern to the Apostle Paul. And we know we've been in Corinthians now for uh, a long, months. Uh, actually, longer, a little bit longer than months and years. Going on over a year. But they're struggling church. They have a lot of issues. And here it is in the final chapter. The apostle Paul tells them to test their faith. Because all his concerns about um, repentance, he's exhorted them, look, if you don't repent, I'm going to come. And I'm not going to hold back. We can't expect you people to repent if they don't have Christ in their hearts. They're not going to be as sensitive to sin. We can't, he's concerned about their witness and the church purity. There's no need to be concerned about those things because if I do not love God and I have not been changed, I'm not concerned about the things that God is concerned about. So he takes it all back to the starting point. Have you tested yourself? Have you, do you have a pulse? How are your spiritual vitals here? Check your vitals. This isn't a new thought in the New Testament. Uh, Throughout the ages, the saints of God have have needed to spend some time and think and examine their hearts and even go so far as to ask God for help and and help me prove myself, help me see what's in my own mind and my own heart. We can be confused at times. Uh, The psalmist in Psalm 26 says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O oh Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. There's this idea that we don't want to take things for granted. We want to check our vitals along our pilgrimage. It's important because what we find in real church life is that there are times when we check people's vitals that they are not indeed are not in Christ, or they do not have a true faith in God. And the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 9 when he is speaking to some of his own people and he says that not all of Israel is true Israel. So there were, were, there were a, a, a group of people who thought they were God's children based on wrong platform and a wrong Thinking, all Israel is not Israel in Romans 9, 6, and 8. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they're not his offspring. And we know that Abraham is the father of faith. And so there are people that do not have faith and yet they call themselves children of God. And this is a wake-up call for them. And the Apostle Paul is trying to set things straight that you're... Your standing in God or in the New Testament, your right standing in Christ does not come from, it's not hereditary, it's not ethnic. It doesn't pass from mom and dad down to you. Now, it's helpful to have believing parents, but that does not guarantee your state of salvation. So check your vitals in come to find out that there were people that just are not authentically gods. They were not the real deal. Now it, is, it gets confusing because outwardly they were. From outward appearance, it, it appeared as if they were true followers of God and had a genuine faith and changed hearts. And so we can give an outward appearance as if things are okay on the inside and they're not. So we need to check our pulse and check our vitals. The New Testament is actually filled with challenges for us to examine ourselves. And this is for believers. I appreciate how the New Testament does not take salvation and grace for granted. But it's always poking at us to make sure, are you in the faith? You say you're in the faith, but are you in the faith? Based on this struggle or these thoughts, it's not to be taken granted for. You know, we can be in a Christian family. We can faithfully attend a Christian youth group or be in a Christian church and maybe even faithfully participate in church activities and not be truly transformed, not be the real thing, not be an authentic Christian. Because participation is, does not equal conversion. Participation does not mean that I have a, convert, a converted heart. Because we can look like it on the outside and not be the real deal on the inside. We have not raised the white flag of surrender. Surrender to Christ and confessed our sins before him and our need for salvation and our need for the joy of the Lord. We have not received that saving grace. The author of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 3, gives a very similar warning and exhortation. He's writing to believers how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And he had told the story of the Old Testament people. And in the, in the Old Testament story of God's people, there are rebels. There are people that are disobedient and they do not have faith in Christ. Now God gave them the law of Moses. He gave them the temple worship and the sacrifices. He, he gave them access to his presence and his holiness. There was a right way to do things. And they neglected it. And they didn't enter into the promised land. And so he applies that in the New Testament. And he says, if if God's wrath fell upon them because they failed to repent and believe, how much more in the New Testament, when they had the law of Moses, you have the gospel, the freeing gospel of Christ. If you neglect this great salvation then you can expect the wrath of God. One thing that we can avoid as we read God's holy word is his furious wrath against sin and rebellion. So there are people who embrace the gospel, they hear it, and it's a sincere faith, and it's a sincere transformation. And then... There and there are times where it just is very clear and obvious to us, and then there's all the others. And from you can start, say, from the most uh, the clearest conversions and transformations, and they're not all that clear uh, sometimes. But and then you start and you get a little, it gets a little muddy and a little muddier and a little muddier to the point where some people don't know if they're saved. Some of us don't know if you're saved. You know, who, are they? A, they say they're Christian. They're on the books of the church role, but there's not evidence. and it, it can get very, very muddy and confusing. By God's grace, church is a nice place to be. I've been to a few churches throughout my life, and generally speaking churches are a nice place to be. You, you find kind people. You usually you're warmly greeted. Uh, hopefully, you, you, you experience an atmosphere of joy and a culture of worship, and you have uh, fine music and celebration. And at churches, you will find God's word preached, and in the preaching of God's word, you will hear, please, you will hear, please, to come to Christ, Please to repent of your sins. Please to believe in the God who has revealed himself through Christ. Please to believe in the God who came down to us and grace offers us forgiveness. And in these pleas, in God's mind, there's an expectation of response. Because when Christ came to preach the gospel, you have this wonderful free offer of forgiveness. But then there's behind it the or else. There, there's always an or else behind God's words because he's a sovereign God. He's the ruler. He's the king. And so behind the pleas that go out in the churches that God has established is this this uh, desire of God that pe- of God's that people will respond to. this not just enjoy the place of God and the people of God, but respond to the real God authentically, to forsake our ways and follow him, to walk in the new life that Christ offers us. And it is a marked difference, even though we muddy the waters with our sin, we muddy the waters with our disobedience because we don't clearly and full-heartedly embrace God as we should and it just kind of waters things down. But the expectation from God is there. Sometimes we just need to check our vitals. And that's what the Apostle Paul is encouraging them to do test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Do you have the fruits? Talked about that in Sunday school, the fruits of the Spirit. True indications, not just participation, but true indications of being a child of God. Have have your affections changed? Do you now start to long for the things that God longs for? Do you see the world the way God sees the world? It's a, it's a whole change in worldview. Now, there's something behind this exhortation as well. And it's a brilliant move, actually, when the Apostle Paul tells them, test your faith, examine yourself, and here's why. You know that unfortunately in this church, false teachers came in and they, of course, they offered false teaching, but also undermined the Apostle Paul. And they criticized his work, and they pointed out faults, and they, they compared his style with the cultural style of the day, the things that people held in high esteem. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, the Apostle Paul and his ministry style sometimes just fell short, and the Corinthians began to even doubt his authenticity. Are you even a true servant of the Lord? And, and they were seeking proof. We want kind of proof. Unfortunately, the false teachers got under their skin and into the head. In verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. So they're asking for more. Because all that he has done, they lost sight of it. And that's what false teaching does. It deceives us. And we no longer see the obvious and the clear. And we start zeroing in on things that, that are faint wisps. And sure enough, that's what happened with the Corinthians here. You seek proof. They doubted the Apostle Paul's authenticity to the point of wanting more proof in addition to what they already had. So the Apostle Paul says, test yourselves. Are you in the faith? Now, here's the thing. Because if they test themselves... He basically puts them on that, puts it on them, the burden on them. Test yourselves if you are not in the faith, then I may not be the real thing. but if you test yourselves and you say, "Oh yeah, I'm a believer, I gave my life to Christ, I remember pe- repenting of my sins, and I have A transformed life to show. I have a trail of breadcrumbs that you can follow from the time I profess faith to this very day. Of course I'm a believer. Then the Apostle Paul would say, then I'm the real deal. If you're authentic, then I'm authentic. Why? I brought you the gospel. The very person that you say you believe in, the message that you say you have embraced, I brought that to you. I preached it. I, I prayed for you. I pled with you. I was kind to you and gracious to you. I worked so you didn't have to work. I served you. All of these things and you embraced it because the message was real and the message came through me. There's a sense in which Paul puts everything on the line here. Now he's confident. He's confident. He knows the answer to the question that he poses. But he's saying, in essence, if you are the real deal, then can't you see that I'm the real deal? Think a, if, you're gonna, if, if I'm a heart surgeon and you're going to doubt whether I uh, am, am truly a heart surgeon, then think about the heart transplant that you're walking around with that took precision, took skill, took knowledge, why doubt it after the fact? So, if you're walking truly, then I am a true apostle and I am truly speaking for Christ. And all of this is real. And all the false stuff that the teachers are feed, feeding you is pulling you away from seeing the obvious. If you're true believers, then I am a true apostle that preached a true message and you embrace it. So, he is truly concerned. About their salvation. And he's truly concerned about their faith. And in his concern. He sees a need that. If they're going to grow. And they're going to say forsake. The false things that they have started to believe in. Then they've got to come back to my message. It's tied to the apostle Paul. He wants them to listen to him. Because he has the words of life. That were given to him. By Jesus Christ. Christ. If you're true, I'm true. Okay, if you find that you're a phony, then I'm a phony. We saw something similar back. It's really kind of been going throughout the the entire book, but back in chapter 3 in verses 1 through 3, he says, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves Are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. There again was a question of authenticity. Because in that day you had letters. You had degrees. You had plaques and certificates that... Showed that you were the real deal. And the accusation could come against the Apostle Paul. Where are your credentials? Where's the letters that you're supposed to be carrying with you from the big wigs. To show that you have the authority to do and exercise what you're exercising. And they can get all caught up on that. The certificate. And he says wake up. Wake up. You are the certificate. You are the living proof of everything that I've been teaching you. You don't I don't need the, the 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 stamp here. You are the stamp. Can't you see that? Your choices for Christ, your your daily decision to to deny yourself and take up the cross is the real thing? You're doing it. You're living the Christian life. Why would you think or question? Uh, Well, maybe it's not real because I don't have a stamp or certificate. Your transformed lives make me the official apostle, he says. And back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. The message that I got from Christ, I'm speaking to you. It's changing your heart. Look at the fruit. Don't get caught up with these other things. External things. So they're they're the living proof, the living seal that the Apostle Paul is a true servant of the Most High God. So it's a common sense way to make a very important point and to get to the truth of the matter. Corinthian church, test yourselves, examine yourself. Do you have a pulse? Do we have a pulse here? How are your vitals? More specifically, if you are going to examine yourself, what do we look for? Well, they're to look to see if you are in the faith. Faith is something that you can be in or it's something that you can be out of. It's something that you can know about yourself. You can, you can take some time, you can do some ciphering, some, some observing, some thinking, maybe some questioning, uh, conversing, and you can determine, the Apostle Paul says, whether or not you have or are in the Christian faith. So there is an aspect to our faith, though it is can be subjective and personal, it's also objective. It's something that can be known. It's something that can be observed. It's something that we can just stop and say, oh, yeah, based on what I, the life I'm living, yeah, it's pretty obvious that I am a believer. Or Uh, well, I'm I'm glad you brought it up because now that you say something, based on the life I'm living compared to what I confessed five years ago, uh, I'm not living like a Christian at all. I don't know that I ever have. But it's something that we can look at. It's, It's not just a private affair. It's also something public. It can be seen. It can be known. We either believe or we don't. And what we believe comes out of our heart. Now, what does the Apostle Paul expect them to find when they examine themselves? Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? It's a question. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. That's what what he means by, look, if, if, if you pass the test, then we pass the test because we brought you. The gospel. So he's put his whole apostleship on the line in the sense he rises or falls with them and they rise or fall with him. But he fully expects them to realize, yes, I'm in the faith. I'm in the faith. So he's not posing it as if it's really um, that questionable. He is confident that they are in the faith and he would know because he delivered the gospel message to them, and he didn't just do that. He spent time with them. He was there for over a year, spending time with them, discipling them, answering questions that, that they would have about the faith. He examined their lives. So he got to know them personally, and that enabled him to determine whether or not they were truly in the faith. He watched them trust and obey the Lord Jesus so he's convinced. So let's tease this out or, or think about this for a little while. Because this is an impo- it leads us to an important question that, honestly, the church still um, answers in different ways. And that is, can you even know for sure if you're a believer or not? Is it even a, a possibility? And there's a lot of things to consider in this, can I, with confidence, say that everybody in this church, or everybody that walked through these doors, or everybody that sat under, pleased to turn to Christ as a Christian? How do you come to these kind of conclusions? Well, I want to answer the question, and rather than analyzing options and, and then give you the answer. I want to give you my answer, and then tell you why and look at some different possibilities or options. But can we know if someone is a Christian? Can I know if I am surely a Christian, or does it just stay a guessing game? I think the answer is yes, we can know. I think the Christian faith is observable, and I'll I'll explain that in a few seconds, but we can know whether or not we are heaven-bound. We can know whether or not we have experienced saving grace. We can know for sure or not if the living God is in our hearts. And that's the easy answer, and I full believe that, and you will see that. But it gets messy, and I understand why we people might oscillate back and forth about whether we can even know. Things get muddied. There's doubt about this. And why is there doubt about these things? Well, first of all, as we know, unfortunately, there are false teachers that come in Christian communities that try to take over people and try to win the sheep over. So they say they're one thing, but they're fakers. They know they're fakers. They're doing it on purpose. It's usually for sordid gain. It's for fame, fortune, whatever. And so, when you begin to peel away the ideal picture of a church and its purity, unfortunately, the scriptures say you have to be on your guard, your believers. You cannot be naive. We still live in a sinful, broken world. So that muddies the world, the, the waters a little bit. Well, how do I know who's a false teacher and who's a true teacher? Well, scripture gives us credentials, gives us ways and tests, for these things, but it's the burden; it's our responsibility to be aware that that happens in a church. So that confuses things right off the bat. We're even told, "Look, there's going to be fakers, there's going to be false teachers, and they're going to try to lead you away from Christ, not to Christ." So then, you add on top of that people who have false confessions, people who may mean well, they may have. Uh, had an emotional time at a church meeting or something, and they said they profess Christ. At that moment, it meant something to them. But since then, there has been no affection towards Christ. So then we're left with a church. It gets messy again, a little muddy, where you have people in it who have said, yes, I'm a believer, and, and we scratch our heads because there's, there's no desire to read scripture, there's no desire to grow, there's no desire to obey, and they're worldly. They side with the world every time, and yet they say this. What do we do with that? Well, it causes confusion. Is this what Christianity is? How do we know? And you have people who might purposely confess Christ just to get something from the church, you have fakers in that sense. Yeah, so you just have you have all these degrees of falsehood. You can also we also know that human beings we are capable of deceiving even ourselves. We can deceive ourselves. We do it almost on a daily basis to some degree. But sometimes it can get really bad. Sometimes we can believe a lie for the truth. Scripture tells us that that's what we do. We believe a lie for the truth. So we consider all these things we might attend a church, we might participate in a church, but we've never actually surrendered to Christ. These kind of things unfortunately are real and they are true and they happen and it makes something that ideally would be clear confusing. People also go back and forth. You have the backsliders. Somebody says I'm a I'm a new believer, I've given up the things of the world and they do for a while, say for a few months, maybe even a year, and then that's it. Then for the next five years they live like a worldly person and an unbeliever. Well wait a minute, were they believers or not? What do I do with all this data that's coming in? How do I figure all this out? So I understand where there can be doubt. And then we have these sobering Passages even from Christ, just so straightforward. In Matthew 7:21, it's been read many times in this church. Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord," will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And Luke 6:46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So there's, there, there can be confessors of spiritual things and they're very convincing on the outside and Jesus knows their heart. By the way, we are told the Lord knows whose are his. So even though we're confused, he's never confused. So it just muddies the waters. There are false Christians. There are false confessions. There are insincere confessions. There are Christians that are hot sometimes and cold other times. And so that's our reality. That's the church world that we live in. It's absolutely true and real, and there's no denying it. And it causes some to doubt if we can ever know. Say, so Take the Catholics, for instance, not to pick on them, but I just happen to know these things. The Catholics, for example, will say that they believe in assurance of salvation but not absolute assurance of salvation. Now, I'm saying I believe in absolute assurance of salvation. So why would they not believe in absolute? Well, because you have these scriptures, some of them that I've read about, we need to constantly examine ourselves. Well, why would we need to examine ourselves if there wasn't the possibility that we're no longer Christians? They believe that you can fall from grace and there are certain sins, mortal sins that you can commit. You can be in the grace, you can be saved and then not saved based on a sinful lifestyle. So you can't be sure about these things absolutely because it depends on your behavior. It depends on where you are in your moment of obedience or not in the faith. And if you happen to die in a state where you were in the grace and obeying the Lord, well, then you're surely going to heaven. But if you happen to die in a state where you were in sin, then no. You have fallen, for there are sins that can cause you to fall from grace. Uh, They claim that the Apostle Paul even did not have an absolute assurance that he was going to heaven. You could say, how could he come to that conclusion 1 Corinthians nine twenty five through 27. So the Apostle Paul says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And so they would say, look, even the Apostle doesn't know if he's going to make it to the end. And there are scriptures that say well, matter of fact, I've got one, someone in here, somewhere I am going to read it at one point or another. Um, I'll get to that in a second. Anyway, but we've got, there are scriptures that exhort us, work out your own salvation. So, can we know for sure or not? What about all these doubts? We can be wrong sometimes about ourselves and we can be wrong. The seed. Therefore, my beloved Philippians, Philippians 2.12, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I would say these passages tell us not to take grace for granted. Just because we have absolute assurance, and I'll tell you what that's based on in a, shortly, doesn't mean we get to take grace for granted. I got my certificate I confess Christ, that's all I need, I'm bringing that all to heaven with me. Scripture says, uh-uh, show me your faith, show you my works. It always goes hand in hand when it's authentic. You don't get the confession, name only stuff, and go to heaven. It doesn't work that way. A, trans, a truly transformed heart will come out. It will, Christ will show himself in you because that's what he wants to do. He wants to demonstrate to the world how, how incredible, incredibly forgiving, loving, and glorious he is through your life. So he will come out, and the fruits of the Spirit will come out in us. Maybe not as strong as we like in ourselves or others, but they will be there. Matthew 24, 11 through 13, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and become lawless. And, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, there it is, will be saved. Don't take your grace for granted. Don't take your grace for granted. So I say we, we can conclude that there's absolute insurance but these things are church reality and I get it. It, it it can cause consternation sin makes things messy so I would say yes these things are true they're false teachers they're false confessions and it's really hard to get to the bottom of things and I am not for one second saying that we can know in every case because we can't but just as real are true conversions just are as real are true confessions People who have embraced Christ and they will go to heaven because Jesus says, and here's where we get to the bottom of things. The reason I believe in absolute insurance isn't because of how faithful I am to God. It's not because how faithful I'll be 20 years from now. It's because how faithful he is to me. Well, In the gospel, you have a promise from God to sinful people. Promise breakers that though you forsake me, though you will not be faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. That's the glory of the gospel, not how well behaved we are for Christ, not what we bring to the table. The glory of the gospel is how committed our loving God is to us, even though we are sinners. Now, we already know in this life we're not going to be completely sanctified. It's not going to happen. That happens up there. So God is dealing with sinners from beginning to end while we're in this world. Maybe to a lesser degree, we don't burden Him as much, we don't sin as much, and it's, it's a relational dynamic that takes place. But my salvation is based on the fact that He said, if you do this, I will do that. What do I have to do? Confess Christ sincerely to the best of my ability as a human being created in the image of God. That's all I can do. And when I do that... God does what he says he's going to do. And the way I know that is because what reformers call the perseverance of the saints. What happens is God makes a promise to us. And even though we might be obstinate, we persevere in the faith. Why? Because of the supernatural work of God. There's a supernatural element in our conversion that will bring us to the end. Does that mean I can just choose to sin whenever I want? Well, I'll I'll make somebody angry. That's not the point. That's taking grace for granted. It is, if I'm a true believer, my heart's going to get softer and softer. I am not going to be as obstinate obstinate as I was. I'm going to love him more. I'm going to love God's people more because the change has taken place. And it's taken place Because of the power of God, not because of how obedient I am, how good I am. If anything in me is good, if God has used me in any way, it's because of his power. The Apostle Paul told us that in this very chapter. He says, I'm weak. Anything you see good, it comes from the power of God, and that's how God works. So I do believe in absolute assurance. I believe in a promise kept, and the promise keeper is God. The Reformers say it is faith alone that saves, but faith is never alone. You always have the whole package of the gospel message with it. You have a transformed life. You have a communities that are built on, on love and kindness and forgiveness and faithfulness where we forsake the darkness and we walk towards the light. And it's proof. It's proof that God is real, as we see these transformed lives. You will recognize them by their fruits: are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the deceased, the diseased tree, bears bad fruit. That's the words of Christ in Matthew seven. So. Our king gives to his kingdom ways that we can know. It's not always a guessing game. It's not meant to be a guessing game. There are concrete, observable, objective things we can be and we can do and we can think that make a difference and that determine whether or not we are in the faith or not. They're gifts that God has given us. On a human level, do I trust in my own ability? Do I trust in yours to persevere to the end? Some are more reliable or not than others, but no, my my faith is in Christ. I trust in God to bring us to the end. I trust in God who loves his bride as the church to bring us up. I trust in God to convert every soul. He knows beforehand those that he will work in, and he will not lose one, Jesus said. I will not lose one that the Father gives me. So that's from a divine perspective. Let me just close with a, a practical thought as well. I would say that all of life is based on our ability to know things for sure. Like, even if you landed in the camp that say, I don't know, Pastor Paul, I just can't, I'm not with you, I don't agree, I still have my doubts, it's too confusing, I'd say, okay, I grant you that, but you know what, you have to live and do church life as if it's real. You have to live as if people truly are saved. Why do you say that? Because the way we conduct church, the way that Christ has given us in the New Testament writings to order our service, to know who can be a pastor and who can't? Who can be a deacon and who can't? Who can teach and who can't? It's based on observable evidence of true conversion. And it's our responsibility to be able to see these things. We can't just, we don't just say, well, I can't be sure if such and such is a a, a man of God or not. So yeah, let him preach the word of God. We don't, God, he doesn't give us that freedom. Everything that we are to operate comes with the with the default position of us doing the work and understanding that there are people that are truly saved and converted and God appoints them and equips them to serve the church in certain ways. He gifts us in that way. It has to be knowable. It, it can't be a guessing game. We don't do guessing games here. So in real life, or take, for instance, in real life, how if God says that I am not to be unequally yoked in my marriage... How can I take a vow with somebody if I'm going to say, well, God, I'm going to take this lifelong vow, but I don't even know if this... I could be bowing myself to the devil for all I know. Like, we don't live life that way. We do know. Do we make mistakes? Yeah. But we do know knowing is real. Life in Christ is real. We can absolutely know because God is a faithful God. He only speaks truth. He does not make mistakes. He's not confused. And he doesn't depend on my ability or your great ability and grit and self-control to get you to the end. It is the power of Christ and the work of Christ. So we do want to challenge ourselves. We want to check our vitals. Do I have a pulse? Why am I not growing? Why does the Bible not excite me? Why am I not inspired by things that I see people that call themselves Christian? They're excited about these things and I'm not. What's going on here? And it's good for us to check our vitals and look and get with God and talk to God. And God wants to be known. He wants us to speak to him. He wants us to bring our doubts and our confusion to him. He's not scared of that. He welcomes that. But let's not fool ourselves. Does my lifestyle back up what I say with my life or with my words? It's supposed to. That's the way the world was designed. Sometimes we need to check on these things. So assuming the Holy Spirit is speaking through his word and the Holy Spirit's presence working in our hearts, we we take this message and, and this passage and we look at it and we say, okay, what can I do, God, Today, to honor you, what can I do to make sure I know so that things are clear, so that things are concise, that you are knowable? We want to test ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith. May God bless the preaching of his word.